Amen. If you have a copy of Scripture this morning, I would like to invite you to open up to the book of Genesis chapter 25 today. Genesis chapter 25. So one of the most interesting concepts that we discover in the Word of God is what's called the the paradoxes of the kingdom. Okay? The paradoxes of the kingdom. So what is a paradox? Well, a paradox is an apparent contradiction in terms that when you examine it more closely, it conveys a deeper truth and reality. Okay? And and the scriptures are full of these paradoxes, and I want to introduce some of them to you today. Let me just give you some examples just to, to show you what I'm talking about. Okay? Remember, let me define paradox for you one more time. It's an apparent contradiction in terms That when you examine them more closely, it conveys a deeper truth or a deeper reality. What what do I mean by these kingdom paradoxes? Well, let me give you an example. It says, the humble will be exalted. Right? That we actually find strength through our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right? God said, I will boast in my weakness because it is his power is made perfect in our what? In our weaknesses. So again, it's like in our weakness we find what? Strength. That's, in a, that's a paradox of the kingdom. The kingdom paradoxes teaches that we actually receive and are fulfilled through giving. Jesus said it is better to what? Give than receive, and that you find more happiness and fulfillment by giving than you do receiving. But the world teaches the exact what? Opposite, right? You got to get, receive to be happy, to be fulfilled. The, The kingdom teaches that there is freedom through service. That when we, when we humble ourselves and we, we're willing to serve and give of ourselves to other people, that is where we try to find true freedom. The, the, the kingdom paradoxes say that we, that we find our life by what? Losing it. Isn't that what Jesus said? Whoever wants to find his life must first what? Lose it. See, that, that seems like a contradiction in terms, and yet there's a, deeper, there's a deeper reality, there's a deeper truth in these paradoxes. That we, we actually live through dying. Jesus said, if anybody wants to have true life and be my disciple, he must take up his cross and deny himself. He must die to himself. And when we die to ourselves is when we truly begin to what? To live. The kingdom paradoxes teach us that we are to love our enemies. To bless those who curse you. That we find joy through suffering. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you experience all of these various trials of many kinds. You know, it doesn't make sense. Like, what do you mean? I'm suffering. I'm going through this difficult time. And you're telling me to have what? Joy? That doesn't make sense unless you're walking in Christ and walking in the kingdom of Christ and his principles that he's given us 
in the kingdom. And of course, Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, hey, if you want to be, whoever will want to be great among you must be, be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be what? Got to be last. You see what I'm talking about? So these are what we're, what we're calling today kingdom paradoxes. And I think these are some of the most distinguishing characteristics that God um, establishes in his kingdom that sets his ways and his kingdom apart from this world system that we're living in. Because we are living in a system, in a world that is dominated by the enemy, by the evil one. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the ruler of this world. And he has his own set of principles. He has his own set of, his own system that he's established. And what God is calling us to do is to live contrary to that system. And these, these paradoxes are really it, very important, essential keys that we need to understand and embrace that allows us to walk as God wants us to walk, to live as God has called us to live. Basically what God's doing, he turns everything upside down on its head. Anything that we think is true or that the world is teaching us is true, God said, no, it's actually the exact opposite. That's what we're talking about today. And so when we, when we walk in his ways and we, and we embrace this kingdom mindset and we embrace the, the, the value system of God, that is when we find peace and joy and fulfillment because that is when we are most like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he is the embodiment of everything that I just shared with you. The humble being exalted, strength through weakness, losing your life to find it. All of those things, Jesus perfectly embodied every single one of those principles. Well, in Genesis chapter 25, we discover another kingdom paradox. And that is very simply, in the title of my message, is this, is that for whatever reason, and we're gonna, there's a very good reason why I believe God did this and has established this pattern, this paradox. But we see in Genesis chapter 25 that the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. There's a lot of wonderful truth in this passage. There's a lot of amazing insights that I'd like to share with you today. And so let's just dive into Genesis 25 and you will begin to see exactly what I'm talking about when I share with you this idea that God has established a pattern that the older will serve the younger. Now, if you look at Genesis 25 with me, I'm not going to spend much time in the first 18 verses, even though this does record the death of Abraham, which is a very, very big deal. OK, I mean, we've been we've been teaching about Abraham um, you know, through this entire time from Genesis chapter 12 all the way up until this point in the story, Abraham lives to be 175 years old. And it says he finally breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man full of years. And he was gathered to his people. So that's a, that's a big deal. I'm not going to spend much time today or really any time today on the death of Abraham, even though you could probably spend an entire message at least on that. But I want to go ahead and, and, and then they give a little bit of some, some genealogies here. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham. The generations of Ishmael are listed here. I'm not going to spend much time there at all. I want to go straight to verse 19. 
because I think this is where we're going to discover this amazing paradox where the older will serve the younger. Okay, let's look at verse 19 together in Genesis 25. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And so Isaac fathered, excuse me, Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel and the Aramean uh, in Padam Alam, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord, his wife became, excuse me, prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And look at what it says in verse 32. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If, excuse me, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, okay? And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger and when her days to give birth were completed behold there were twins in her womb the first came out red all of his body like a hairy cloak so they called him his name Esau afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel so his name was called Jacob or Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And now we'll go ahead and read 28 and 20, 27 and 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And we'll, we'll stop right there for now. So there's just a lot going on in this, in this story, Okay. So the first thing that I want you to, uh, if, you, if, you have, if you like to follow along in your listening guide or you're, you're following along with us on the screen, the first thing today is that, again, I've already stated this, but let's just lay it out there. God has established a pattern by consistently elevating the younger son above the older. He's established a pattern by consistently elevating the younger son <clears throat> above the older. Now, before we look at this, point in and of itself, I just want to go ahead and, and mention, because I will address this in very briefly a little bit later, that this passage, in, in addition to Romans chapter 9, which Paul basically has commentary on, it's Genesis 25, and then Malachi chapter 1 addresses this very same uh, story as well. But if you've ever read Romans chapter 9, it is probably one of the most theological, scrutinized passages in all of the scripture. There's been a tremendous amount of debate historically about what is Paul communicating here. And, and really, I'm, I don't want, again, I'm not going to get deep into this today, but I have to at least address the topic is that it really boils down to these, these beliefs or these teachings that you've probably heard, most of you are probably familiar with, the, the teachings of predestination and election. So Romans 9, Paul goes into this, this long discourse and he's basically commenting on the story here in Genesis 25. And 
I'm going to address that a little bit more later. Honestly, you could probably spend several weeks itself breaking down Romans 9 itself just to, to really um, do that passage justice. That's not my goal here today, even though I will touch on it briefly a little bit later. So before we get there, I just want you, so you should be somewhat familiar if, if you're a student of the Bible, Romans 9, Genesis 25, those are kind of very much parallel passages, and, and Paul is, is giving us a little bit of commentary on what's happening here in Genesis 25. But before we get into that, let's consider for just a second, how does God consistently choose and elevate the younger son over his older brother or brothers? Now you say, well, this is one example in Scripture. No big deal. But let's go back a little bit. You see, the very first two children of Adam and Eve were who? Cain and Abel. Who ended up having God's favor in that story? Who was the younger brother? Abel. Abel was elevated over Cain. Even after Cain murdered his brother, then the next son that was born to them was Seth, and he was the younger brother than Cain, and he too was elevated over Cain. Even when you get to the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you see, I did a little bit of investigation, and it's not 100% clear who was the older son, but most commentaries and most uh, scholars agree that Shem was probably the younger brother, that Ham and J Japheth and Ham were older brothers than Shem. Well, who was elevated over his two brothers? Shem was. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, 9. Then we saw here with Isaac and Ishmael. Remember, Abraham had a son before Isaac. His name? Ishmael. Ishmael was the older brother, but who was elevated above his older brother? Isaac was. The younger brother was elevated over the older brother. Then we see here in Jacob and Esau the same thing. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob, however, was elevated above his brother Esau. Then you go to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. His first son, Simeon, was rejected from the birthright because of some terrible things that he did. Nonetheless, Simeon and Reuben, the first two born children, they were not given priority or basically um, they were uh, reduced before God in his sight. Guess who was elevated above them? Well, Judah was elevated as one of the most important sons of Israel because the, the scepter would not depart from Judah. We know that, that the Messiah would be born in the tribe of Judah. But then also the very youngest brother, before Benjamin was born, who was the very youngest brother? Remember, he had so much favoritism by, by Jacob. What was his name? Joseph. He was the youngest brother, and then, however, he was elevated above all of them. Are you starting to see a what? A pattern? Then when Jacob goes to adopt his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were half Egyptian and half, uh, you know, Israelite, remember J Joseph brings his, his sons to, to Jacob to bless them. Manasseh's the older son, and what does Jacob do? Crosses his hands, and he blesses Ephraim, who is the what? Younger son over his older brother, Manasseh. Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. He was maintaining this pattern. Did you know that Moses was the younger brother of both Aaron and Miriam? Moses was elevated as a younger brother over his older siblings. 
Oh, what about David, right? Remember Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he parades all of his sons in front of Samuel. And Samuel's like, no, but he's not here. I don't see him. Do you have another son? David was the what? Youngest. David was elevated above all of his brothers. And even Solomon, David's son, was not his oldest son. And so again, there are even more examples. I think those are the, probably the most prominent examples. And so you, you begin to see that God is doing something when he is trying to teach us this paradox. Why is it that he is constantly elevating the younger son? And listen, at the end of the day, it's not even necessarily that the younger son is, is morally better than the older brother or anything like that. Now, they're all going to have to live and die by their own choices. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But it's God's doing something to establish this pattern. So let's take a look real quick now. Let's go back to Genesis 25, and, and let's just let's look at what the Lord says to Rebecca. Remember, Rebecca, she, she, she conceives. She knows something's not right, man. There's, some, there's something that's going on within her womb. And she doesn't really know what's happening. I mean, there's no telling what's going through her mind. And so she inquires of the Lord. And what does the Lord tell her? Look at Genesis 25, verse 23. It says, The Lord declared to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and address the Romans 9 theological elephant in the room. This major debate about election and predestination and all of this stuff. And I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase because this passage has absolutely nothing to do with individual salvation. Nothing. See, God did not say in this passage, hey, Rebecca, uh, you have two children in your, room, in your womb, and I hate Esau before he was ever even born. He's going to hell. He don't, he don't even have a what? He doesn't even have a chance. But I love Jacob. He's one of my chosen. He's one of my elect, and he's going to what? He's going, they've never even been born. They've never done anything right or wrong, and God, God is, that is not what God is saying here. Do, do you understand that, right? It has nothing to do with individual election unto salvation. Why is that important? Because unfortunately that is how many people, and there's, there's great room for debate in this area, and that's why I don't want to spend too much time here, but many people believe that this passage supports the idea that many of us are chosen before we're ever even created, before God ever even created the world, that he picked who's going to heaven and he chose who's going to hell, and therefore we don't really have a choice in the matter. We're determined. It's, it's God's already fixed the, he's already rigged the game. So what we do really doesn't matter at all. Ultimately, that's, that's what it means. I reject that. I fundamentally reject that. I know there's, again, I'll be happy to have any kind of discussion with anybody in this room because it's a very controversial topic. I get all of that. I've studied it for years. Trust me, I've landed in this place. But I want you to see 
that in this particular passage, it has nothing to do with Jacob and Esau's salvation. As a matter of fact, what does God tell Rebekah? He says, there are two what in your womb? Nations, corporate bodies, people groups. Two peoples are represented by Jacob and Esau. You see, they're going to be separated from each other. And how are they separated from each other? Let me tell you how. How is it that Esau and Jacob ended up being separated from each other? They ended up representing enemies, that Jacob represents the people of Israel, which he's the patriarch of the, of the nation of Israel. Esau ends up becoming the patriarch of the nation of Edom. Okay? What made them separate? What divided them from each other? Very simple. Their own free choices. Esau had just as much of an opportunity to serve and love and worship the God of Israel as his brother Jacob did, but Esau chose not to. And as a result of Esau's free choice to reject the God of Israel, to disobey his parents, to sell his birthright for his own carnal desires. You know the story, right? He comes in, and we didn't read that part, but let's just go ahead and talk about it. He comes in from a day out hunting. He's famished. He's about to starve to death. And he comes in, and, and Jacob's cooking this nice-smelling stew, lentil stew or whatever it is. And he's like, give me something to eat. Jacob says, okay, I'll give you something to eat, but first sell me your what? Your birthright. In other words, I'm the younger brother, but I want to have the inheritance of the older brother. Esau so did not care. This is like the most important thing in his life, okay? He didn't care. He sold his birthright for a pot of stew, okay? That's his choice. Esau made that choice, and it shows that he was not a godly man, and he was not a man of faith. He did not care about the promised seed. He did not care about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was just simply trying to feed his own carnal desires to get his stomach full for that moment. He didn't care about his birthright. He later took two wives from Canaan. Isaac and Rebekah had asked their sons, please don't marry any of the women from the land of Canaan. Don't do it. You need to go back and find a wife from our home country up in Aram. But he didn't listen to his parents, so he took wives from the land of Canaan. And so it was Esau's own free choices that ended up becoming the determining factor that separated him from Jacob. Now, was Jacob perfect? Absolutely not. He was a schemer. He was a trickster. He was always trying to, you know, pull one over on somebody. And there were times in his life when he did not exercise faith. I get all of that. But what we need to see here today, guys, is that this passage of Scripture is not about the individuals necessarily, Jacob and Esau, but it's about the two people groups, the two nations that would come from them. You see, God had already determined, yeah, there are going to be two nations, there are going to be two separate people groups that come from you, and they're going to be enemies, perpetual enemies. They're going to be set up, separated from each other. And if you read the scriptures, you will see that the nation of Edom, remember Esau, Edom, okay, he's the patriarch of that nation. They become basically representative of the primary arch enemy of God's people, Israel. And there are some really harsh judgments in scripture against the nation of Edom, okay? But it has nothing to do with Esau's salvation. 
His, his eternal destiny was determined by his own free what? Choices. Don't miss that, okay? So if you want to know where I land on the theological uh, you know, spectrum about Romans chapter 9 and all of that, I do believe that many people take this passage in Romans 9 way out of context and they try to teach us that God has already decided the game beforehand. It's a rigged game. It doesn't really matter what you do because he's going to do everything anyway and he's determined who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and we really don't have a what? We really don't have a choice. I reject that fundamentally and I'll be happy to discuss more about that. I know it's not the time or topic to do that today. But I had to address that because it's part of this whole passage here in Genesis 25. So the reason that God says, now in Malachi 1, he he quotes this. He says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I hated. That's strong words, right? Why would God say he hated Esau? Because Esau sold his birthright. He lived a carnal life. He rejected the God of Israel. He lived in perpetual rebellion. He was a man of wickedness and sin and faithlessness so he 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 was the one that that rejected god and that's why god had a problem and a big issue with esau so again this is that whole predestination election thing i'm going to kind of stop there because at the end of the day Everything has to do with our free choices. Jacob and Esau made free choices as individuals that determined their own standing with God. Obviously, God knows everything. We're not going to get into that in any more detail because I'm already too deep down the rabbit hole probably today for all of that. But we do see, just to to recap my first point, we do see a pattern. There's There's an elevation of the younger brother over the older brother. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 25. Now, let's look at the next point I want to show you is that, now keep that in mind, and and now let's, let's take it a step further, is that God, he most often works through the humble and the weak to accomplish his purposes. He most often works through the humble and the weak to accomplish his purposes. The defining, characteristic, the defining characteristic of Esau was pride. He was a proud man. And his pride is what alienated him from the God of Israel, his rebellion. So, when we look at the life of Jacob, Let me back up real quick. I want to read something from Hebrews chapter 12 because I I want to get in uh, a little bit more into Esau's character. It says, Hebrews 12 comments a little bit on on Esau. He says, says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Now, what does the Bible say? God opposes the what? Proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so Esau fell short of the grace of God because of his pride. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble and defile many. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. He was sexually immoral. He was godless. 
and he was proud. Again, these are the determining, the defining characteristics of Esau, who for a single meal sold his birthright. For, you know, afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Why was he rejected? Not because God determined that before the foundation of the world, because of his, his own what? His own choices, his own pride. He could find no ground for repentance. Why could he not find ground to repent? Because he was too what? Proud. You have to humble yourself to what? Repent. Even though he sought the blessing with tears. He cried over it, yeah. He was, he was sad because he, he, he didn't get the blessing, but he wasn't repentant. So again, these are just things that I want us to kind of understand and, and, and wrestle with a little bit as we look at this passage. So, so what is the primary characteristic of somebody who walks closely with God? It is humility. It's humility. Now let's talk about Jacob for just a second. Again, was Jacob a perfect man? No. But Jacob had an encounter with God one day. And if you remember the story, they wrestled all through the night. Anybody remember the story? And apparently it was a pretty, pretty even, evenly matched fight, wrestling match. Because it was getting, this was going through the night and this, this man that Jacob at the time didn't understand exactly who it was. But they're wrestling together and it's beginning to become daylight. And the man is finally like, man, this guy's not giving up. And so what does this man do? He, he reaches over and touches Jacob's what? hip socket and dislocates his hip. What happens if your hip is dislocated? Where do you go? Straight to your knees. Jacob fell straight to his knees. But you know what Jacob did at that time? He wouldn't what? He wouldn't let go. He held on. You know what's ironic is that Jacob, his name means supplanter or heel grasper. You see, when God dislocated his hip, he fell to his knees and he was grasping his what? His heels. Wrapped around his, his heels, at the bottom, on his face. He said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Of course, this is when God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. But the one thing that I want you to take away from this passage is this. From that, from that encounter. Jacob realized later that he was wrestling with who? With God. This is, this is God. I, he said, I met God face to face and I did not die. So he immediately understood nobody should have been in this position that I was and not die. That's very what? Humbling. What's the second thing that Jacob did? From that day forward, Jacob had to walk with the what? He had to walk with the limp. As a constant reminder. That he needed to remain what? Humble. Every day he got up and he felt the pain in his hip and he had to walk with the limp and he never walked the same. He went back to that time when he met God face to face and humbled himself before the Lord. So guys, there was a quality about Jacob and it took him a little while to get there. Whereas Esau was defined by his pride, Jacob can be seen as what kind of a man? A humble man. He humbled himself before God. You see, that is what God does. He's looking for people that he can use throughout this world, and he's looking at all of the people that the rest of the world typically ignores and overlooks. 
Because God is wanting to use weak people to accomplish his purposes. I think about Gideon. I think about young David as he faced down Goliath. I think about Moses who had a speech impediment. I think about Ruth and Josiah, King Josiah, who was eight years old when he took over the crown and did amazing things for Judah. I think about the disciples themselves as as they were mocked and laughed at by the ruling class and the establishment of their day because they looked at these men and thought, these are just some backwood, farming, fishing, uneducated men. And yet they turned the world, what? Upside down. Because, guys, at the end of the day, God is looking for ordinary people so that he can do what kind of work? Extraordinary work. Because when he takes an ordinary person and does an extraordinary work, who gets the glory in the end? God does. If God can take somebody like Moses who can't even publicly speak and and tell him to go and lead the people of Israel and stand before the most powerful man in the world, God gets the glory for that. If God can take a bunch of uneducated disciples and end up turning this entire world upside down, with the, with the good news of the gospel. You see, he did an extraordinary work through them. And that's, that's really what we get at here with Jacob and with Esau. But it also applies to you and to me. So the next time that you feel like, well, I'm not strong enough for God to use me. And I'm not educated enough for God to use me. And I don't have enough money. Or I'm not old enough for God to use me. Or some of you are sitting there saying, I'm not young enough for God to use me. Whatever it is, you see, we can, we're, we can come up with whatever excuse that we want to come up with. We're not enough, we're not enough, we're not enough, we're not this, we're not that. That does not matter. God does not care about your ability. He only was waiting for your what? Availability. Let me say that again. God is not as interested in your ability. He's only interested in your what? availability. Lord, are you making yourself available to God or are you hiding behind those excuses? At the end of the day, God is wanting to take the humble and the weak and he's just simply saying, are you willing to go? Are you making yourself available? Let me do the rest. I'll supply you with the power. I'll supply you with the strength. I'll supply you with the courage. I'll give you everything that you need. You just have to be willing to say yes. And that's the difference that we see in Jacob and Esau. Which leads me to my final point. This is where the whole thing just goes, it just blows me away. Remember the paradoxes I read to you at the beginning of the message? Who is the embodiment of every one of those paradoxes? Jesus. He is, right? Jesus embodied, when he came and he dwelt among us and he lived and he walked on this earth, he represented all of these paradoxes in flesh, in his his lifestyle, in his actions, in his attitude, in everything that he did. And guess what? This paradox, where the older will serve the younger is also perfectly embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean? Well, I'll start out by saying this. You see, the Son of God, the Ancient of Days, he has origins from of old. 
He became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Let me say that again. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the what? Sons of God. So what did Jesus do? He is God in his very nature. He is eternal. He's older. Is he not? He's older than all of us. And yet he was willing to humble himself and come here in human form to wrap himself in flesh, taking on the form of a servant. You see, here we see Jesus permanently taking on human form, and he came to earth as a what? As a servant. What's the title of this message? The older will what? Serve the younger. Now, here's what's ironic about that, is that most of these examples that we've seen, whether it be David or Moses or um, Cain and Abel or uh, all of them that, that I gave to you, you see Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, most of these examples were that the older brother was not walking with God or they were not pleasing to God or they were not willing to submit to God. And so God had to elevate a younger brother over them even though they really weren't willing. Most of them were very jealous and angry about it. But look at Jesus. What did he do? He was what? Willing. He's like, I'm the older brother, and I'm going to willingly, in the name of the Father, to come to, to accomplish the will of the Father. I'm going to come into this earth, but I'm not coming to be served, but I'm coming to what? Serve. The older will serve the younger. You see, Jesus is considered our elder brother. He's the elder brother. If you don't believe me, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 2. So we're going to finish our time here in Hebrews 2. And the, the irony of this is um, it's pretty amazing. This entire chapter is about this. Let me just kick off in verse 5, okay? I'm, I'm just going to take our last 10 minutes or so. We're just going to kind of look at Hebrews 2 together. I want to give you a couple, of, a couple of points about this passage, and hopefully it will, maybe, maybe it will just make you say, wow. And it will motivate you to be more like Christ. I know it has motivated me. All right, Hebrews 2, you ready? Look at verse 5. It says, for it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he's quoting now from Psalm 8. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angelic beings or the heavenly beings. But you have crowned him with glory and honor. Look at what it says. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now there's a whole nother play on the older and younger right here. I just want to address it. I just want to mention it to you right now because you may never have thought of this. 
But we have another elder race, if you will. I don't know how else to call them because I do think they precede us in creation. I think they were created prior to mankind. They're called the sons of God in the scripture, but we commonly call them what? Angels. Do you know that angels effectively are our older brothers? And yet, God said, I did not subject the world to come to your older brothers, the angels, but I have given this world to come. I've put everything under the feet of man. He subjected everything under the feet of mankind. You say, well, okay, well, what's, what's that all about? Let's keep reading and we'll find out. He says, now in putting, in verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So if we have an older, if we have older brothers that we're calling the angelic, the heavenly beings, angelic race, whatever you want to call them, they're called sons of God. We're called the sons of God when we, when we, we're adopted into the family. We're brothers. Brothers and sisters. But did you ever pick up on the fact that it says Jesus did not come in the form of a what? An angel. Jesus became a what? A man. Guys, this is important. Jesus did not come to redeem the angelic race. He did not. Jesus came to redeem who? mankind don't forget that when God the son determined to come into the world and take on flesh and he when he was born into this world and he he had a human body that he lived on this earth he died he was resurrected he ascended to heaven let me ask you a question when did Jesus stop being a man He didn't. Today, right now, somewhere, wherever the kingdom of heaven is, we know Jesus is seated where? The right hand of the Father in heaven, and he is a what? A man. He's a descendant of Adam. He's the son of man. You see, what we're seeing here, guys, is that there is a major wordplay going on here, is that Jesus, even though he is our older brother if we keep reading in this passage look at what it says guys it's amazing it says in verse 10 it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory he should be the founder of their salvation he's made perfect through their through suffering for he sanctifies he who sanctifies and those who he are sanctified all have one source so that is why he is not ashamed to call them what brothers okay and he, he quotes some scripture here. Now go on to verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be me made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. All right. That's a lot. But let me just I'm going to finish right here. What we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ is the most amazing, unpredictable, incomprehensible act of God's grace that we could have ever imagined. Why did God establish this pattern in Scripture where the older would serve the younger? Because ultimately, who does that point to? It points to Jesus Christ, our elder brother. And as he came into the world and humbled himself and willingly, remember, he's the, he's the only one that willingly went to serve his younger brothers, in a sense, right? We're, it, you see what I'm going? He's the older brother. We are, in a sense, younger. But he willingly came to humble himself and to serve us. He became the prime example of humility and grace and ultimately accomplished everything for our salvation and redemption through his obedience. You see, Jesus Christ demonstrated that God chose to put everything under the feet of man in heaven and on earth so that he fulfilled the ultimate picture of redemption. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? I'm going to say our praise team, come on back up, and and I just want to finish this message by just I always want to give you something to take away from, from when, you, when, you, when we understand and we break down a passage like this. There's a thousand different applications that we could have with this, with this uh, message today. One of them comes from verse 18. I just want to read that because it says, Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay? We have a God who can identify with us in our weakness because he was willing to come and take on human form and experience life and temptation and suffering just like we go through. So he knows what you're going through, first of all, okay? Don't we take that for granted sometimes? We forget that Jesus, like, like you ever talk to somebody and they're like going through a hard time and they're just like, God just doesn't know what I'm going through. He's God, like he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't understand. That's not true. God became a what? A man. He knows everything that we're going through. He experienced betrayal and pain and suffering and hurt and loss and heartache and temptation and all of these things. So he does know what you're going through. That, that's, that's, nothing. that's not nothing. That's a big thing. That we have a God that identifies with us in our weakness. That's one thing. The second thing I want you to take away from this is simply this. You will never be more like Jesus Christ than when you're humble. Which means that probably for most of you, and I know for me, the number one sin that we will battle our entire life is what? It's pride. We're proud. We don't, want, we don't like to admit it. We don't want to admit it. I didn't want to admit it for a long time, years, until God humbled me. 
when you're truly humbled by God and you come to the end of yourself like Jacob was, he, he, he was humbled, he was at the foot of God, he had nowhere else to turn. It was only at that moment that he realized how proud he really was. That's, that's my testimony. God will either humble you or we will humble ourselves. But at the end of the day, I want to challenge you and encourage you guys to pray. And I mean sincerely pray. We're going to sing one more song here together. But pray that God and his Holy Spirit will just begin to show you the areas of pride that we have harbored up in our hearts. Because it's so subtle, we can often overlook it, we can can, uh, hide behind it, we can pretend that it's not there, we can deceive ourselves. It's so, so very easy. And God opposes the what? but he gives grace to the humble. And so if we want to be more and more like Jesus Christ, if we are truly going to be his disciples, if we're truly going to be an example to the world, if we're truly going to be followers of Christ, our lives should be defined by humility. It should be defined by humility. So I want us to pray right now. I'm going to to pick up my guitar. I want us to sing one more song, but I just want you to really seriously right now, forget about who's around you, forget about where you have to go in 10 minutes, Forget about what you're going to do this afternoon. I just want you to really take this moment to say, God, I know that I'm proud. God, pray this with me. God, I know that I'm proud. I know that I have harbored pride in my heart. Please just reveal that to me now, Lord. Lord, as painful as it may be, as hard as it may be for me to admit, Lord, please just show me the areas of my life where I have let pride creep in. Because, God, I don't want anything to do with it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will allow me to humble myself. We want to humble ourselves before you, Lord, now, before you have to humble us. So, God, we're asking you, Holy Spirit, right now, just just help us, Lord. Show us those areas of our life that need to be confessed and repented of. Because we want nothing to do with pride. Lord Jesus, we're asking you to do that for us right now in your holy and your precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's sing one more.